Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. Today, for the full hour, the first of two shows featuring extraordinary testimony from scientists about oil giant Exxon knowing and lying for decades about climate change. If anything, adverse climate change from elevated CO2 is proceeding fully consistent with what we knew back in the early 80s at Exxon. Experts say that an intense corporate disinformation campaign has led to decades of inaction and to today's climate crisis. Because of the time when nothing was being done to address global warming, we are now faced with the fact that tomorrow is today. We're confronted with the fierce urgency of now. This is the time for vigorous and positive action. These voices and more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. On one single day on Capitol Hill in October 2019, Republicans bum-rushed a closed Trump impeachment investigation. Mark Zuckerberg, CEO of Facebook, testified about that corporation's myriad of controversies, and then largely ignored by corporate media, but covered here on On the Ground, was the first ever congressional hearing focused solely on the massive deception of Exxon and other oil companies who knew decades ago about the catastrophic impact that burning fossil fuels would cause, but lied about or buried their findings. This is part one of our coverage of scientific and legal testimony during that hearing of the House Subcommittee on Civil Rights and Civil Liberties, which was chaired by Representative Elijah Cummings of Maryland until his death just six days before this October 23rd hearing. This session is presided over by the new chair, Representative Jamie Raskin, also of Maryland. Good morning, everyone. The subcommittee will now come to order. Today's hearing examines the oil industry's knowledge and awareness of climate change and how its climate change denial campaign has affected people of color and vulnerable populations in our country and around the world. I will now uh, recognize myself for five minutes. But before I begin, I want to take a moment to recognize our beloved colleague and friend, Chairman Elijah Cummings, who chaired our committee. And he believed with all of his heart and all of his mind that government must be an instrument for the common good of all the people. His passion for freedom, for justice, for strong democracy will infuse the work of this subcommittee and the committee generally for generations to come. As our nation mourns him, many people have been sharing some of Elijah's most inspirational aphorisms, one of which is apt for our purposes today. In a 2016 hearing about the environmental and public health crisis unfolding in Flint, Michigan, Elijah called on his colleagues to recognize the moral gravity of the situation. And he said, quote, our children are the living messages that we send to a future that we'll never see. The question is, will we rob them of their destiny? Will we rob them of their dreams? No, we will not do that. His words echo for us in the investigation of climate change, the civilizational emergency of our times, which threatens all of the rights and freedoms of the people, including the right to live. 
Climate change is one of the preeminent emergencies facing our country. The evidence seems overwhelming that for decades the oil industry understood the lethal threat of climate change but misled the American people and buried the scientific truth of climate change. The industry has deprived the people of crucial information with predictable and lopsided results. Working people without the time or money to fight back against big oil are paying the heaviest price now for climate change. Oil companies like Exxon knew the scientific reality 40 years ago, but waged a war of deception that cost us precious time in the fight to save our planet. In 1977, Exxon scientist James Black told the company's top executives that fossil fuel usage was releasing enough carbon dioxide to change the planet's climate. Two years later, in 1979, an internal Exxon memo noted that the buildup of CO2 in the atmosphere would, quote, bring about dramatic changes in the world's environment. That's in 1979 they had a memo pointing that out, that there would be dramatic changes in the environment. In a 1981 memo, Exxon Executive Roger Cohen cautioned against understating the threat to our planet, warning that the Earth's temperature could rise so high that it would, quote, produce effects which will indeed be catastrophic, at least for a substantial fraction of the population. That's in 1981 that Exxon Executive Roger Cohen was warning of this. Exxon knew decades ago that climate change was real and would have devastating consequences if left uncorrected. In fact, according to Exxon scientist Ed Garvey, who is here today, Exxon was so certain of its science that it originally sought to be part of the solution and launched a sophisticated research program aimed at further understanding the full range of carbon dioxide's effects on our planet. To Exxon's credit, its scientists were at the forefront of this research, and their dire predictions turned out to be frighteningly accurate. When faced with the reality of the massive damage fossil fuels were likely to cause, Exxon could have chosen to present this truth to the American public, redirect its own research and development resources, and lead the way to a global shift towards alternative energy sources. But this was not the path that Exxon chose. Instead, it sold off its renewable energy companies, it doubled down on fossil fuels, and along with other big oil companies like Shell and Mobil, it launched an extensive and sinister campaign of climate denial, undermining the work and the warnings of its own scientists. To make matters worse, big oil companies fortified their own infrastructure against climate change, factoring in the anticipated rise in temperatures and sea levels when deciding how and where to build their own infrastructure. This revealing course of conduct simply gives the game away. They use their knowledge of climate change to protect their future profits while preventing the American people from acting together to protect our collective future. They use their knowledge of climate change for purposes of corporate planning, but publicly denied the reality of climate change for purposes of national planning. This contradiction is at the heart of our hearing today. The oil industry's denial campaign placed private corporate interests above the national public interest, and now poor and minority communities are bearing the brunt of the devastating effects of climate change. Climate change has already had a disproportionate effect on low-income communities and communities of color, from New Orleans to Puerto Rico, the people who are often said to suffer first and worst. Rising sea levels threaten to displace coastal and island communities. Government efforts 
are already underway to relocate Native American tribes in Louisiana and Alaska whose lands are vanishing into the ocean. Immigrants from Central America are migrating here to escape famine and drought caused by global warming. Urban neighborhoods suffered disproportionately from rising temperatures. In Chairman Cummings' hometown of Baltimore, lower income areas of the city were as much as six degrees hotter than the cooler, wealthier, tree-lined neighborhoods of the city. Hurricanes and wildfires are increasing in frequency and intensity, trapping poor people who cannot afford to evacuate or who struggle to rebuild their lives after losing everything to floods and flames. In short, climate change produces the most devastating effects on those who can least afford to manage it. The decades-long denial campaign has twisted and perverted our democracy. By funding climate denial and lobbying against governmental action, Big Oil has not only achieved a loud and distorting voice in the climate change debate, it has also deprived voters and policymakers of the materials and the ability necessary to make informed decisions about this fundamental challenge to the future of human existence. James Madison said, quote, a people who mean to be their own governors must arm themselves with the power that knowledge gives. The people have been denied the power that knowledge gives, which means that we've effectively been governed by big oil with respect to climate change. We are thankfully beginning to see momentum shifting towards action to prevent the further destruction of our climate system, but we must remain wary of the feel-good commercials and empty promises by companies that are still intent on deceiving the public. Exxon and their allies are continuing to fund climate denialism and explore new oil fields to exploit, even as the warnings from scientists grow increasingly dire about our situation. In closing, I return to the words of Chairman Cummings. At a climate change hearing oversight in April, Elijah noted that, quote, the true measure of leadership is whether we leave the world better for our children and our grandchildren and those yet unborn than we found it. Each day that we fail to act on climate change, we are risking the health and security of future generations. In order to understand and confront the crisis we are facing, we must recognize the disastrous deception that brought us to the brink. As we contemplate how to stop the destruction of our planet, the oil industry appears committed to perpetuating its deception. I challenge everyone here today to answer Congressman Cummings's call. Will we allow climate denial to continue robbing our children of their destiny and their dreams? No, as Elijah said, we will not do that. We will find the truth, and the truth will start the process of setting us free if we act with courage and resolve the kind that Chairman Cummings exemplified, the truth will give us a second chance to get it right. I think our video is ready. In the fall of 2015, an investigation by the Pulitzer Prize-winning Inside Climate News, as well as the Los Angeles Times and the Columbia School of Journalism, revealed a trove of documents from scientists inside oil giant ExxonMobil showing that Exxon scientists understood the mechanisms and consequences of human-caused climate change as early as the late 1970s and early 1980s. What we found when we read these documents is um, a clear, unmistakable, systematic discrepancy between, on the one hand, what ExxonMobil said and discussed about climate change in private and in academic circles, and on the other hand, what it said about climate change to the general public. Proponents of the global warming theory say that higher levels of greenhouse gases are causing world temperatures to rise and that burning fossil fuels is the reason. 
scientific evidence remains inconclusive as to whether human activities affect the global climate. Uh, and it, there was no questioning that, that, the, that the atmospheric carbon dioxide was increasing, that atmospheric carbon dioxide was going to change the climate in some fashion. The question was how fast, how much, and, and what kind of, of uh, impacts would it have. From the Earth's tallest peaks to the ocean floor, scientists warn no part of the world will be spared from the climate crisis. The consequences for nature and humanity are sweeping and severe. Houston has always had storms and rain, but Hurricane Harvey brought 50 inches of rain over a few days and flooded 80,000 homes across the metro area. That's unprecedented, and climate change was what made that difference. So we modeled Hurricane Harvey in the 1900 climate, and we modeled Hurricane Harvey in today's climate, and we saw that there was a three times more likely chance of Harvey occurring in today's climate as in the 1900 climate. What if Exxon had continued down the path of accepting climate change, being a good safe actor in all of this, working with the government? Where would we be right now if the biggest oil company in the world, a leader in industry, had done that? I want to welcome our uh, first panel of witnesses. We have Dr. Ed Garvey, a uh, former scientist with Exxon Corporation, uh, Dr. Martin Hofert, a uh, former consultant to Exxon and Professor Emeritus of Physics at New York University, Dr. Naomi Oreskes, who is a professor of the history of science and affiliated professor of earth and planetary sciences at Harvard University. We have Sharon Eubanks, Esquire who is of counsel to the Henderson Law Firm. And let's see, we have Dr. Mustafa Ali, who is the Vice President of the Environmental Justice, Climate, and Community Revitalization at the National Wildlife Federation. I'm going to ask all of you to stand, if you would, and raise your right hands. And do you swear or affirm that the testimony you're about to give is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you God. Let the record show that all uh, of our witnesses uh, answered in the affirmative. Thank you very much. Please be seated. Without objection, all of your written statements will be made part of the record. And with that, we're going to start with Dr. Hofert and work our way down this way. I, too, mourn the passing of Committee Chairman Elijah Cummings, who was a giant in the quest for bringing the American dream to all, all of us. I want to thank Jamie Raskin, Chair of the House Subcommittee on Civil Rights and Civil Liberties, Ranking Member Chip Roy, and all subcommittee members for giving me this opportunity to testify about my personal experience as consultant on the carbon cycle and climate at Exxon Research and Engineering, uh, the issue that is of major importance here. I was recruited to work at uh, Exxon Research as a consultant by my colleague Andrew Caligari, who headed a group on climate modeling and the carbon cycle at Exxon. And this was in 1981. I made it clear that for the Exxon Lab science to be credible and for me to participate, the work needed to be published in reputable science journals that were subject to peer review. This was welcomed, and though I remained a paid consultant only until 1987, I continued to publish science work with Exxon colleagues thereafter. Our group published eight peer-reviewed papers, three as a paid consultant, and five thereafter. The work focused on understanding the carbon cycle and on the climatic effects of CO2 emissions. And to bring Exxon colleagues Brian Flannery and Haroon Kashki up to speed, on the latest research, via tutorials, and eventually published papers. 
These Exxon scientists were excellent researchers and were soon authoring papers themselves. I'm gratified that we did important work that is still cited today. And if I may say so, the quality of the scientific work at Exxon was high, and these were published in peer review journals and incorporated into the knowledge base of how the Earth was, was evolving under the influence of fossil fuel emissions. But it would be a distraction to go into great technical detail at this point on our findings. Suffice it to say that our research was consistent with findings of the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change on Human Impacts of Fossil Fuel Burning, which is that they are increasingly having a perceptible influence on Earth's climate. Impacts of climate change have become more pronounced over time. Scarcely a day goes by without a news, stories, news stories of major wildfires in the American West, river flooding unseen for hundreds of years, droughts, the disappearance of mountain glaciers, tundra melts, more intense hurricanes, melting sea ice in the Arctic, and glacial calving in Antarctica. I should say, never thought that I would see that in my lifetime because of the thermal inertia of the Southern Ocean inside joke, all of which are consistent with the uncertainty spread of IPCC model predictions. If anything, adverse climate change from elevated CO2 is proceeding faster than the average of the prior IPCC model projections and fully consistent with what we knew back in the early 80s at Exxon. I worked with Exxon researchers for several reasons. First. They were excellent scientists who made positive contribution to the research. Second, I believed that having Exxon scientists on public papers acknowledging the reality of climate change could help reduce the polarization surrounding climate change science. And third, I hoped that the work would help to persuade Exxon to invest in developing energy solutions the world needed. I have much to say on this topic, but that's not the focus of this meeting. I want to emphasize that although my experience with Exxon researchers was positive, I was greatly distressed by the climate science denial program campaign that Exxon's front office launched around the time I stopped working as a consultant, but not collaborator, for Exxon. The advertisements that Exxon ran in major newspapers raising doubt about climate change were contradicted by the scientific work we had done and continued to do. Exxon was publicly promoting views that its own scientists knew were wrong, and we knew that because we were the major group working on this. This was immoral and has greatly set back efforts to address climate change. I cannot see into Exxon management's heart. Whatever its intent, willful ignorance, stymieing an effective response to preserve quarterly profits, or simply an incomprehensible refusal to incorporate their own world-class researchers' results into their business plans, which is demonstrably counterproductive long-term, what they did was wrong. They spread doubt about the dangers of climate change when its researchers were confirming how serious a threat it was. The effect of this disinformation was to delay action internally and externally. They deliberately created doubt when internal research confirmed how serious a threat it was. As a result, 
in my opinion, homes and livelihoods will likely be destroyed and lives lost. Thank you. That was Martin Hoford, a scientist who worked as a consultant for Exxon, testifying before Congress on October 23, 2019. This is On the Ground on Pacifica Radio. After a brief break, more testimony, starting with another former Exxon scientist, Ed Garvey. Stay with us. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Hoford. Dr. Garvey. Good morning. Uh, let me st start also by saying that I want to express my sympathy to the panel, the loss of the chair. He was a great man and will be missed. Thank you for the opportunity to speak before the committee. I am here to testify that Exxon considered rising CO2 levels and the potential for CO2-driven climate change to be of sufficient concern to commit to a significant research effort in 1978. I personally participated in the data collection for this research effort, and I had firsthand knowledge of my management's objectives in collecting these data. I'd like to briefly describe to you some of the pertinent events and the managerial philosophy that was in place during my five-year tenure at Exxon Research and Engineering Company. I was hired in 1978 to assist a senior scientist at Exxon, Dr. Henry Shaw, in the development of a greenhouse gas research project. Exxon scientists such as Dr. Black and Dr. Shaw had raised this as an issue to the corporation. I was told by Dr. Shaw that Exxon undertook this research to earn itself a place at the table among scientists, policymakers, etc., regarding climate change and the potential responses to it. The research was intended to make an important contribution to the understanding of CO2 and climate science. The program was also intended to constitute a uniquely Exxon contribution to the science. In developing the program, we worked closely with Drs. Wallace Broker and Tara Takahashi, geochemists with Columbia University. My managers at Exxon felt that a joint investigation with well-respected researchers such as these scientists would lend credibility to the effort. By working with leading scientists from academia and by contributing highly useful research, Exxon felt its opinions would be taken seriously regarding greenhouse gases and possible solutions to the problem. We ultimately selected Exxon International's 500,000-ton supertanker, the Esso Atlantic, to set up a dedicated monitoring system. The monitoring equipment would obtain measurements of CO2 in surface water and in air as the ship traversed its normal routes. The program's goal was to understand the role of the ocean in the global carbon cycle and its role in storage of anthropogenic CO2. Exxon expended a very significant effort to design and support the equipment in the relatively harsh environment on board the tanker, over $900,000 per year at the program's peak. Exxon also planned to make known its commitment to the greenhouse gas studies. The videotapes of me on the ship that are now on the Internet were made by professional photographers in 1979 with the intention of presenting the program to shareholders. The tanker project required the cooperation of multiple divisions within Exxon, the Exxon Research and Engineering Company, which employed Dr. Shaw and myself, Exxon International, and Exxon USA. 
It was my understanding that the Exxon Corporate Board was aware of the project, given its magnitude, approved its implementation, and was kept apprised of its progress. Around 1980 or so, unrelated to the tanker project, Exxon expanded its research efforts into climate modeling. They hired several scientists from academia, including Dr. Brian Flannery, as well as Dr. Hufford, to conduct this line of research. About two years later, the oil market experienced a significant downturn. Exxon began to lay off staff across the corporation and also ended the tanker project abruptly. To that point, we had published only one journal article on our work. I have included a copy of the article with my written statement. With the end of the project, I opted to leave Exxon in 1983 and continue my graduate studies at Columbia. Although I was very disappointed when Exxon discontinued the study, I am still grateful for the opportunity I was afforded. In summary, the importance of my testimony is to note that Exxon knew of the anthropogenic climate change issue in the 1970s and considered it a sufficiently important problem to the company and perhaps to society that it undertook a major research effort. While the research at Exxon did not continue long enough to fully interpret the results, the data we collected eventually became part of the scientific work published by Columbia scientists. Although the corporation chose to discontinue this research, it continued to fund climate modeling research for at least several years after it terminated the tanker project. For the work that I was involved in, Exxon efforts were intended to reduce the uncertainties associated with climate change forecasts and CO2 cycling. In both instances, the corporation was aware of the potential problem caused by rising CO2 levels. Thank you very much for your testimony. Uh, Dr. Oreskes. Thank you very much for the opportunity to speak with you today. My testimony is based on 15 years of research on the history of climate science and on the history of attempts by the fossil fuel industry and its allies to mislead the American people about that science. Scientists have known since the late 19th century that carbon dioxide from burning fossil fuels had the potential to change the Earth's climate. By mid-20th century, the issue was being widely discussed. In 1961, for example, Alvin Weinberg, the director of the Oak Ridge National Laboratory, called carbon dioxide one of the big problems of the world, by which he meant a problem, quote, on whose solution the entire future of the human race depends. By the late 1960s, political leaders were discussing the issue, too. One example was Henry Jackson, the Democratic senator from the state of Washington. In 1969, Jackson wrote to Lee Dubridge, the science advisor to President Richard Nixon, reacting to a letter from a constituent who had heard about the greenhouse effect on television, Jackson asked Dubridge whether pollution from automobiles could contribute to the greenhouse effect. Dubridge replied, it is known that high concentrations of CO2 in the atmosphere will warm the climate. There is little doubt that the automobile contributes a very significant fraction of this carbon dioxide. Between 1966 and 1970, when Congress held numerous hearings on air pollution, many leading scientists testified about carbon dioxide and climate. Their testimony, along with legislators' detailed and sometimes lengthy discussions of the issue, helps to explain why the 1970 Clean Air Act explicitly states that, quote, all language referring to the effects on welfare includes effects on soils, water, crops, vegetation, weather, and climate. Fast forward to 1992, when world leaders met in Brazil to adopt the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, which committed its nearly 200 signatories to prevent, quote, dangerous anthropogenic interference with the climate system. In signing that convention, President George H.W. Bush promised, quote, concrete action to protect the planet. But that did not happen. 
And since 1992, climate change has gone from being a prediction to being a fact. We now have clear and convincing evidence not only that man-made climate change is underway, but that it is driving sea level rise, making floods, fires, heat waves, and hurricanes worse, threatening water supplies, and adversely affecting human health. So why did we fail to prevent dangerous climate change? The answer is not for lack of information or awareness. I submit that a large part of the answer is the systematic organized campaign by the fossil fuel industry and its allies to sow doubt about the science and prevent meaningful action. We have heard how ExxonMobil not only knew about the findings of climate science, but until the 1980s contributed to that science. However, sometime in the late 80s or early 90s, ExxonMobil changed course. Rather than accept the science and alter its business model appropriately, it made the fateful decision to fight the facts. For more than 30 years, the fossil fuel industry has deliberately and systematically misled the American people. The details of these efforts are presented in my recent co-authored report, How Americans Were Deliberately Misled About Climate Change, submitted as Appendix 4. In that report, we argue that the fossil fuel industry did not just pollute the air, they also polluted the information landscape. They did this through false advertising that misrepresented climate science, by collaborating with trade organizations and think tanks to reinforce their misleading messaging, and by attacks, personal attacks, on climate scientists. Internal industry documents make clear that these activities were intended to undermine public support for action on climate change. In this sense, disinformation campaigns were adjuncts to the extensive congressional lobbying aimed at blocking lawmakers from passing legislation that might meaningfully address the issue. Between 2000 and 2016, the fossil fuel industry spent more than $2 billion on congressional lobbying, outspending environmental organizations and the renewable energy sector by a ratio of approximately 10 to 1. In our 2010 book, Merchants of Doubt, Eric Conway and I showed that the strategies and tactics used by the fossil fuel industry to disparage climate science, to sow doubt in the minds of the American people, and to block action were the same as those used by the tobacco industry. We further showed that this was no coincidence because many of the same individuals, PR firms, advertising agencies, and think tanks were involved in both. Democracy depends on citizens having access to accurate information on which to make informed decisions. As a result of fossil fuel disinformation, the American people have been denied accurate information about a matter that affects our lives, our liberty, and our property. And while the industry has reaped literally billions in profits, hundreds of billions in profits, we, the American people, are now footing the bill for the damage. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Reskes. Ms. Eubanks, you're on for five minutes. Thank you very much for the opportunity to appear before this subcommittee today. I'm going to take this time to amplify some of the more salient points of my written testimony. Here in the United States, we face a climate emergency. Climate change poses a fundamental threat to human health, ecosystems, and property. We see its effects in coastal flooding, increased severity of storms, changes in precipitation patterns, and sea level rise. Climate change, global warming, call it whichever, is caused by the emission and accumulation of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, primarily due to the combustion of fossil fuels, oil, gas, and coal. So what did the companies know about global warming, the fuel companies? When did they know what they knew, and what did they do about it? 
And what legal difference does any of that make? Can they be held liable for their conduct? Well, in 1958, the industry as a whole was studying carbon dioxide in the atmosphere through its industry organization, the American Petroleum Institute. From 1968 onward, the industry was repeatedly warned of the climate risks of its products, including warnings by their own scientists. Indeed, throughout the 1970s and 1980s, Exxon and other companies and industry associations like the American Petroleum Institute worked at the forefront of climate science research. They also funded academic scientists, especially those who were doing climate modeling. They examined the emerging issue both in terms of the existential threat to their business they looked for potential technological solutions, including alternatives to fossil fuels, and evaluated the potential impacts on society and ecosystems. The oil company scientists reported their findings to supervisors and executives within their corporations. What did these companies do with the knowledge and information that they amassed about the cause and effects of global warming? They kept it to themselves. And instead of disclosure, the industry leaders funded a campaign of disinformation. A robust and growing body of documentary evidence demonstrates that the major oil and gas companies whose products are substantially responsible for global greenhouse emissions and the resulting climate energy emergency we now face, these same companies had early and repeated notice and, and, and knowledge of the climate risks and they had plenty of time to develop ways to avoid or to reduce those risks. Instead, they chose to mount a campaign of disinformation and denial. We know they did this, and what's more, we know it from their own internal documents. In 1998, a memo entitled Global Climate Science Communications Action Plan was leaked to the press. Nicknamed the Victory Memo, it outlines a multi-year, multi-million dollar scheme to create uncertainty about well-established climate science. And it was an elaborate plan. The idea was to recruit and train a team of scientists to debunk global warming on radio talk shows, at press briefings, campus workshops, and other types of public outreach. The plan was developed by a 13-member group of communications and PR firms in addition to the American Petroleum Institute, Exxon, Chevron, and Southern Company, which is a major utility. The target of that campaign? You guys, Congress. Congress is mentioned at least eight times in this memo. Also targeted are teachers and industry leaders. In an effort to make those embracing the consensus on climate change appear to be out of touch with reality. The project's first goal, as mentioned in the memo, spotlights Congress hoping to get a, quote, majority of the American public, including industry leadership, to recognize that significant uncertainties exist in climate science and therefore raise questions about those, e.g. Congress, who chart the future U.S. course on global climate change. The mechanism for sowing confusion about climate science would be a new educational foundation called the Global Climate Science Data Center with an advisory board of respected climate scientists, so-called, and a two-year budget of $5 million. The center would be a one-stop resource for climate science for members of Congress as well as others. Victory would be achieved uh, the memo states, and re when recognition of uncertainties becomes part of the conventional wisdom. 
It appears that some form of the plan was implemented, and yet that was only the tip of the iceberg. The denial campaign continues today, particularly in the courtroom. In my written testimony, I highlight the similarities between the actions of Big Tobacco and what we know about the actions of the fossil fuel industry, similar tactics and lies. I think of how Henry Waxman showed America the true face of the tobacco industry, exposing decades of deceit. He conducted scores of hearings from numerous committees of all aspects of tobacco. That was congressional oversight, and no one ever said it was easy. But legislation is needed, and legislation and oversight are conjoined. Hearings make a public record that are necessary and they're proper. Because of the time, because of the time when nothing was being done to address global warming, we are now faced with the fact that tomorrow is today. We're confronted with the fierce urgency of now. This is the time for vigorous and positive action, wholly within your jurisdiction. Thank you, Ms. Eubanks. Dr. Arley, for five minutes, you're recognized. Yes, and I would also like to raise up the name of Chairman Cummings, who, when I was a Brookings uh, fellow here on Capitol Hill, he was a mentor uh, to many of us, especially young men and young women of color. Chairman Raskin, Ranking Member Roy, and members of the committee, on behalf of the National Wildlife Federation, our 52 state and territorial affiliates, more than 6 million members, and environmental justice communities across our country, thank you for the honor of testifying before you today. Today's hearing comes at a crucial time as our most vulnerable communities are in the crosshairs of both public health impacts from the burning of fossil fuels and the impacts of climate change. My grandmother had a saying, when you know better, do better. Exxon and other fossil fuel companies have known the impacts of their industry on our planet and the health of our most vulnerable communities for decades. For over 40 years, the environmental justice movement has been placing a spotlight on the disproportionate health impacts that have been happening in communities of color, lower income communities, and on indigenous lands. They have been collecting, researching, and analyzing their own data through citizen science and working with colleges, universities, and scientific organizations to highlight those public health challenges and climate impacts they face on a daily basis. Health impacts of burning fossil fuels include increased respiratory issues, exacerbated allergy symptoms, asthma, cardiovascular disease, and premature death. In the United States, more than 26 million people have asthma. Communities have also had to battle the misinformation campaigns over the years. A handful of fossil fuel companies have provided funding to scientists to produce biased data. This analysis is used to deny or understate the negative impacts of the fossil fuel industry, discredit the practicality and the value of clean and renewable energy systems, or refute the very existence of climate change and the role of human activity on its proliferation. Environmental justice communities have often had to deal with the double whammy of fossil fuel pollution that comes from facilities like those owned and operated by Exxon and others. They have to deal with the immediate impacts of exposures to the burning of fossil fuels and to the warming of the oceans and our planet, which contributes to the increases in hurricanes, floods, droughts, and wildfires, just to name a few. Fossil fuel facilities are disproportionately, let me say that again, disproportionately located in communities of color. From southwest Detroit to Baytown, Texas to Cancer Alley in Louisiana, communities of color are in the crosshairs of this pollution. 
and have been told not to worry. More than 100,000 people are dying prematurely from air pollution in our country. That's more than dying from gun violence. More than one million African Americans live within a half mile of oil and natural gas wells, processing, transmission, and storage facilities, not just including oil refineries. 6.7 million live in counties with refineries, potentially exposing them to an elevated risk of cancer due to toxic air emissions. In Tennessee alone, 54% of residents living in counties with oil refineries were African American. For reference, African Americans make up around 13% of the U.S. population. Emissions from oil and gas have been linked to over 138,000 asthma attacks and over 100,000 missed school days each year. Approximately 13.4% of African American children nationwide have asthma, compared to 7.3% of white children. African Americans are exposed to 38% more polluted air than Caucasian Americans, and they are 75% more likely to live in fence-line communities than the average American. Yes, your zip code does determine your health and what's next to you plays a big role in how long you might live. Climate change presents the second whammy. It is a global and domestic problem and our most vulnerable communities are often hit first and worst. Disruptions of physical, biological, ecological systems can lead to significant impacts to wealth and health. It's really quite simple. Communities of color carry the burdens for the burning of fossil fuels. In 2017, there were 16 natural disasters in the United States that exceeded $1 billion in losses. Hurricane Harvey dropped 27 trillion gallons of rain over Texas and Louisiana with an estimated cost of $125 billion, making it the second most expensive natural disaster. Over 72,000 people needed to be rescued, causing 14,000 National Guard members to be activated to help. Community members in the Manchester neighborhood in Houston, Texas, and Port Arthur, Texas, are severely damaged by both the water, wind, and the 8.3 million pounds of unauthorized air pollution released in their communities, putting their health at risk. Hurricane trauma creates high levels of anxiety and post-traumatic stress disorders among those impacted by the storms. Natural disasters increase stressors, further threatening the mental health conditions already facing overburdened and vulnerable communities. Flood and extreme rains. Heavy participation events, the heaviest ones percent of rainfalls now drop 38% more in the Northeast, 42% more in the Midwest, 18% Dr. Ali, if you could just wrap up because sure. your time is up. I can't. All of that being said that our most vulnerable communities are the ones that are being hit first and worst and being disproportionately impacted. I look forward to answering your questions. You just heard Mustafa Santiago Ali, Vice President for Environmental Justice, Climate and Community Revitalization at the National Wildlife Federation, testifying before Congress about Exxon and other oil companies lying for decades about climate change. This is On the Ground on Pacifica Radio. After this brief break, questions for the experts from lawmakers, starting with Representative Jimmy Gomez of California. Stay with us. Does it got to come down to this? In order to see things for what they are, for what it is. We still might not be free up in this piece or treated very equally as far as I can see. Hell no, we ain't all right. 
Now all these press conferences, breaking news alert, this just in. While your government looks for a war to win. Flames for the blame game, names where I begin. Walls closing and get some help to my kin. Who cares? While the rest of the Bush nation stares as the drama unfolds, as we the people under the stairs. 50% of this son of a Bush nation is like hating on Haiti and setting up assassinations. Ask Pat Robinson, quiz him. Mm. Smells, Smells like, like terrorism. terrorism. Racism in the news, still one-sided views. Saying whites find food. Uh. Pray for the National Guard who be ready to shoot. Because they be saying us blacks loot. What is your boy, son of a bush doing? <laughs> Nerd. New Orleans in the morning, afternoon, and night. Hell, hell no. Hell no. We hell ain't alright. New Orleans in the morning, afternoon, and night. Hell, hell no. Hell no. We ain't alright. New Orleans in the morning, afternoon, and night. Hell no. Hell no. We ain't alright. In the morning, afternoon, and night. Hell no! Damn, that is. Damn. Now, them fires, earthquakes, tsunamis, I don't mean to scare. Wasn't this written somewhere? Disgraces, all I be seeing is hurting black faces. Moved out to all them faraway places. Emergency, Emergency state corpses, alligators, and snakes. Big difference between this haze and, and the diamonds of the BMAs. You better look what's really important, y'all, under the sun. Especially if you over 21. This ain't no TV show, ain't no video. This is really real. Beyond them same old keep it real. Quotes from the TV stars driving big rim cars. Streets be blood be. No matter where you at, no gas. Driving is a luxury emergency. Don't y'all know? They said it's a state of emergency. Show somebody's government is far from reality. Yo, check one, two. New Orleans in the morning, afternoon, and night. Hell no. We uh, are going to now launch into our uh, five-minute per member questioning period. Uh, we're going to roll with the punches a little bit because there are so many other hearings that people are in and out of, and I'm going to begin by yielding uh, my the first five-minute block, which I would ordinarily take to Mr. Gomez before he has to go. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. At the beginning, we heard from my colleague from Texas who said, why are we discussing the issue of climate change in the Civil Rights Committee and not in the Environmental Committee. It's because when we have denied science for so long, it led to a, a lack of uh, progress and a, a sincerity of trying to deal with this issue, right? Which led to a disproportionately impacting people of color, minorities, people in urban areas. You know, if you really look, where are we gonna see high rates of asthma? minority communities? Where are we going to see a lack of clean air and clean water? Minority communities. Where are we going to see a heat island effect where you see rising temperatures scorching cities in minority communities? Where are you going to see people paying a disproportionate amount of their income to keep their houses cooler in minority communities? Right? Yes, minority communities are disproportionately impacted first and foremost but we will not be the last communities that are disproportionately impacted. The people who represent rural areas, if you do not think that climate change is coming to your district or to your communities, think again. Look at paradise in Northern California, devastated by wildfires. We have so many wildfires that we can't even keep track of them in California anymore. And these fires don't go uphill, they go downhill. Things that firefighters have with years and decades of experience have never ever seen before, right? So denying science leads to a denial that we can actually tackle this problem. 
I'm actually proud that this committee, for the first time, is bringing up this issue in the context of civil rights. Because oftentimes, communities of color, communities that are most impacted, are often the ones that are left behind. And I agree, some policies have to do a better job of targeted resources. I actually passed a bill when I was in the California legislature, 35% of all dollars to combat climate change go to the areas that are most disproportionately impacted by climate change, as well as rural areas. And guess what? We had a couple of Republicans vote for that bill because they know that their people are also impacted. So with that, I want to go to my written testimony. The oil industry's climate denial campaign represents, I believe, a distortion of democracy. Everyday Americans simply don't have the capacity to get their voices heard the way that oil industry does with high-dollar lobbyists, fake reports from well-funded think tanks, and scores of television ads. So I want to just show one of those examples of how this works. Can we uh, play the video? Produced by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And here is the mirror of that, produced by the Cato Institute. They've adopted the exact same page layout design. If you were a congressman, how would you tell the difference between this and this one? And that's the point of this deception. Well, um, Dr. Oresas, can you explain this a little bit? Thank you very much for the opportunity, and particularly to discuss the issue of the distortion of democracy. So one of the things we know is that ExxonMobil and other members of the fossil fuel industry have spent hundreds of millions of dollars on advertising campaigns, false advertisement reports, documents designed to confuse both the American people and Congress about this issue. And so this is just one specific example that we documented in our work that was produced by the Cato Institute. And this clip really shows you very clearly how this operates. They produced a report that was designed to look exactly like the National Climate Impact Assessment. But if you compare the reports, what you see is that the Cato Institute, which is not a scientific organization, is actually refuting the findings of the National Climate Impact Assessment. But they do it in this format that is extremely confusing. And why would they do that? Well, this is a good question. I mean, you would have to ask them, but they are part of... Speculate. They are part of a network that they have been heavily funded by the fossil fuel industry. They have very strong connections to the Coke family and the no. Coke industries. So it would be plausible to conclude that this was part of a strategy to prevent action on climate change. So they're not the only think tank that does this kind of Not thing. at all. Um, we've counted over 30 think tanks that were involved in the networks that we've studied. The Royal mm. Society back in 2006 did a study of think tanks that had fu been funded just by ExxonMobil alone, so not including Chevron on Peabody Coal and all the rest, just Exxon alone had funded 39 different think tanks and organizations that promoted misleading and inaccurate information about climate change. Thank you. Um, I'm out of time, but thank you so much. Thank and I yield back. And we go now to um, Ms. Kelly, the pride of Illinois 2nd District. Why, thank you, Mr. Chair. <laughs> We've heard from Dr. Oreskes and Ms. Eubanks about how oil companies other than Exxon engage in climate denial. So I want to turn to some other examples of oil industry deception. In 1997, a mobile oil ad claimed that scientists cannot predict with certainty if temperatures will increase. Dr. Hoford or Dr. Garvey, by 1997, would it be fair to say that the scientific community had reached this consensus that global warming was really a threat? 
I think we would probably both agree that that consensus was forming and had almost been totally clinched. Scientists are actually very self-critical. That awareness may not be widespread, but when you publish a result in a, in a scientific journal, the whole point is to be mercilessly critical of the result because we want to have faith that what we're publishing is accurate. It's going to be the basis of other people's research. And over time, and you can track this through the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change reports, many of which were attacked by climate change deniers, there has been an increasing certainty that humans are responsible for major climate change. As a matter of fact, geological scientists call the present era the Anthropocene, meaning that it is humanly created, the basic changes in the geophysics of the planet. Could I just quickly join in on this? Um, but this ad is deeply misleading because in 1995, the IPCC had reported in its second assessment report that the balance of evidence suggested a discernible human impact on climate. So there was a consensus among scientists that climate change was underway. But this is a classic example of the denialist tactics by throwing in certain adjectives, for example, where changes will occur. That's technically true. It was not possible then, and even now, very difficult to say exactly where particular changes will occur. So by throwing in these little key adjectives, they present a claim that is deeply misleading and yet difficult to refute. Okay, thank you. Would it be fair to say that this statement was likely, as I think you're trying to say, crafted to deceive the American public about climate change? Yes, I think it would be extremely fair to say that. Okay. <laughs> In 1996, just one year before this ad, mobile oil engineers building facilities along the coast of Nova Scotia factored climate change, including rising temperatures and sea levels into their structural plans. This included raising the height of their oil rigs an additional two meters above sea level. Other oil companies took similar precautions to protect their investments while publicly dismissing the risks of climate change. In 1989, Shell Oil engineers redesigned the natural gas pipeline in the North Sea to account for rising sea levels as a result of global warming. Dr. Oreskes, would you agree that oil companies took steps to fortify themselves against the effects of climate change while simultaneously depriving the American public of the necessary information to prevent climate change? Yes, absolutely. This stark contrast between public statements and private action is not just a thing of the past. In recent years, oil companies have begun to publicly acknowledge the existence of climate change. For example, Shell has added a page to their website urging action to fight climate change. On this page, Shell says, and I quote, the climate is changing and human activities appear to be to blame, yet people still question the science evidence. Why do you think that is? Can there be any doubt? Again, what is behind this supposed change in tune, and what are your thoughts on Shell's assertion that people question the scientific evidence? Well, I mean, it's hard not to want to laugh at that. I mean, why do we think that that is? Because of the 30-year campaign that Shell participated in to create doubt and to question the scientific evidence? So again, this seems to me part of a strategy and tactic to deny their own role in this confusion. Thank you. Dr. Ali, you have spoken at length about the unequal burden of climate change and the effects we have seen in communities of color. In that context, what does this say about the company's continued oil exploration, say about how they value the lives of people of color? It says that they don't value the lives of people of color, or they value them less. 
and Mustafa Santiago Ali, Vice President at the National Wildlife Federation, will have the last word on today's show. This is the first of two shows highlighting the voices of scientists and other climate justice advocates during that first ever congressional hearing on the deception of Exxon and other oil companies who knew decades ago about the catastrophic impact that burning fossil fuels would cause but lied about or buried their findings. Those testifying included Martin Hoford, former Exxon consultant and professor, Ed Garvey, former Exxon scientist, Naomi Oreskes, professor of the history of science at Harvard University, Susan Eubanks, attorney with the Henderson Law Firm, and again, Mustafa Ali, the chairman of the House Subcommittee on Civil Rights and Civil Liberties is Representative Jamie Raskin of Maryland, who chaired the hearing. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. You can contact us, support us, and partner with us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter under On the Ground Show. We're the page with the picket sign with green lettering that says on the ground. And we are on iTunes and Google Play under the title WPFW on the ground. The music we played this hour included Public Enemy. Hell no, we ain't all right. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace and Happy New Year. <laughs>